You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. So the talk that I'm offering today is associated with a forthcoming book project, The Edinburgh Companion to Modernism in Contemporary Theatre, of which uh, I'm one of the co-editors. This book is scheduled for print in June of 2023. It's currently uh, in its first proofing phase, and uh, this is one of the draft covers I received last uh, Tuesday. <laughs> so um, we're still at that very early stage. It may not look like this in the end. The, uh, the space here in SCARF is set up partly for postgraduates and postdoctoral students uh, to learn more about academia as a lived experience. So I thought before I dive into the paper, I thought it would be worth spending a moment just discussing how this project itself came to be, uh, how, the, how the timeline for something like this might work, um, and how, how far along we are in the journey to being able to hold this book in hand. And this, I hope, will also hope to contextualize the voice that I'm using in this paper, um, which is the voice of a kind of editorial introduction rather than uh, a chapter or an article entirely of my own. So it's sort of trying to open up space for others. So you'll hear me talk uh, in the talk toward the end about the other work uh, that this section of the book, this last section, will include. So in 2017, I was giving a talk on Pan Pan's work, uh, the, their adaptations of Beckett's radio plays at the University of Exeter, and in the audience was Adrian Curtin, who had a very early stage book proposal of this project with one other editor, Claire Warden. He invited me to contribute to what was then a 10 essay collection, a small volume with uh, EUP, on modernism's legacy in contemporary theater and performance. I agreed, so I developed this long essay, a 10,000 word chapter on uh, Beckett and border thinking. And then in 2019, after the press reviewed that proposal, they invited the editors to bring in additional collaborators at editorial level to extend this to a companion length project. They thought this had a much bigger possibility um, than just that short book. So now we have uh, 32 contributors, 250,000 words, and a much more substantial project with a longer timeline. So I agreed to join at editor level, and I pitched a section of the book that uh, would involve uh, 10 or more contributions, and then I helped the team to modify this overall proposal, particularly from my perspective, to incorporate much more strongly a diversity of voices, the practitioner voices alongside the academic voices, and not to have those sectioned off, but rather woven into and among the scholarship to try to, uh, to gather and weave the sense of practice and research together in, in a volume like this. So um, the paper I'm giving today is a section introduction or part of a section introduction for the fourth and final section. And so I have this obligation of introducing other scholars, but I also hope that the argument and the analysis that I conduct within this introduction, you can see the shape of my own research agenda and the ideas that kind of animated me and brought me to this book in the first place. And I think that'll be pretty obvious because you'll find some Beckett uh, marking it pretty heavily. So um, in our editorial introduction, this is how we described this section, what I'm about to begin. We say the final part takes slippages as its title and central organizing concept. This set of essays draws attention to the fuzziness of terms, categories, disciplines, temporalities, and histories that emerge when modernism is conceived as a dynamic flow rather than a period or an event with a single fixed terminus. Terminological distinctions are put under pressure and are shown to be flexible in their meanings and their intra and interrelationships. Straightforward or teleological progress narratives become harder to tell. Palimpsestic structures become apparent. Fluidity and boundary crossing come to the fore in this section as contributors investigate how contemporary theater mingles with the modernist past 
messily and complicatedly in accordance with modernism's evasions of neat arrangements and demarcations. So with that macro look, um, we'll now zoom in and look at uh, how this argument is structured and how it begins. Struggling to write at the midpoint of the 20th century, amid the cultural devastation and material depredation of post-occupation Paris, Samuel Beckett opened his novel, The Unnameable, with three questions. Where now? Who now? When now? Tackling respectively the dynamics of space, embodiment, and time, these questions, asked in a novel that takes the form of a long monologue, might make us think of theater. They engage the reader in a process of building a world. They announce a voice striving to come into existence, emerging from an otherwise empty space. They expose the authorial condition directly to the audience, thus complicating the notion of character as conventionally understood. Even while they stabilize the novel's beginning with the appearance of a logical progression, they also announce that identity, position, and temporality are no longer part of our given circumstances but instead that all three are subject to radical instability, and not only in the realm of art. It was during this novel's composition that Beckett turned to the theater. He said, quote, to get away from the awful prose I was writing at the time, and wrote, en attendant Godot, in a matter of months. It is no accident that Beckett, whose work has been variously classified and reclassified as avant-garde, high modernist, late modernist, postmodernist, and sui generis outside all categories, becomes almost a patron saint of this volume's last pages, having already haunted many that came before. Part four, entitled Slippages, represents a performative refusal to submit to strict boundary conditions. Its theme is the persistence of spatial, temporal, embodied, conceptual, political, generic, and technological slippages in what defines modernism or contemporary theater. Having already noted the capaciousness of the term modernist, and the challenges of attending to its historical specificity, even as its vector travels into the contemporary, what this section highlights is the role of elasticity, porousness, fluidity, flexibility, and transformation in how these concepts continue to operate. In, this, in the book's introduction, this is the macro uh, overall book for the introduction, the editors returned to the affective character of modernism and underlined the embodied nature of its thought. Previous sections have addressed the quality of memory, reimagination and transmission as revealing the enduring impulses of modernism. The category of slippage emphasizes the role of freedom in such impulses. It offers a conceptual tool to articulate that sense of flow, disallowing the binding of modernist thought under the sign of temporary notion nations, constructed ethnicities, provisional dates, literary regulations, or rigid politics. One of the great ironies of encyclopedia entries on the isms of the avant-garde is that its unstable, messy, shifting networks of people are called movements, and yet they are so easily shorn of all dynamism in the retelling. Their signal images, paintings, photographs, and texts often appear to be two-dimensional and static. The contributors in this section turn to the theater to find out how, much, how movements might still move. Seeking to preserve conceptual openness while providing meaningful and scholarly clarity poses numerous challenges even at an ontological level, as has been extensively theorized in post-structuralism. And I'm thinking here um, of a line from Foucault. On what table, he says, according to what grid of identities, similitudes, analogies, have we become accustomed to sort out so many different and similar things? 
what is this coherence, which, as is immediately apparent, is neither determined by an a priori and necessary concatenation, nor imposed on us by immediately perceptible contents. And this is just one example of many in which categories are subjected to scrutiny um, by post-structuralists. Both modernism and contemporary performance clearly exist in the sense that they are discourses with a literature, a heritage, and a praxis. But to pin these terms down, to arrive at a stable definition about what boundary conditions might allow us to know in a strictly logical sense whether a work is or is not modernist, would require a more monolithic narrative of modernism than its actual history allows. The strategy this section takes with such aporias is to turn to multiplicity. Its diverse voices, approaches, and examples align with those who, in performance studies, have rejected the booby trap of all false binaries. And I'm using there the language of Dwight Conkergood from uh, performance studies, interventions, and radical research. In Frederick Jameson's major study, The Modernist Papers, he offers a related pathway. He says, the prospects change somewhat when we understand that getting out of binary oppositions may often mean not so much doing away with them as multiplying them and using their initial ideological starting point as the beginning of a more complicated construction, which is at the same time a more complex diagnosis. As a complex diagnostic tool, then, a concrete example of modernism in contemporary performance may help to illuminate some of these slippages under discussion in the section. From 2013 to 2017, the German director Frank Kastorf directed Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle at Bayreuth, a venue that is both the heart of Wagner's ongoing legacy, as well as a vital organ, perhaps the lungs, of 19th century aesthetic culture in Germany. Kastorf led one of the leading avant-garde venues that is both uh, in, uh, sorry, uh, avant-garde venues of Berlin, the Volksbühne am Rosa Luxemburg Platz from 1992 to 2015, having a profound impact on the post-reunification evolution of contemporary theater and theater theory. Indeed, Kastorf is a major figure in what has been theorized as the post-dramatic by Hans Thies Lehmann and others. Born in 1951 in East Berlin, the capital of the German Democratic Republic or the DDR, Kastorf has written extensively in several program notes about how the influence of growing up under a communist government, about the influence of growing up under a communist government, noting how artists of that origin, unlike their, quote, postmodern counterparts from West Germany, tend to consider each production as a contribution to ideology, considering themselves, he says, however ironically, as, quote, unquote, failed politicians. Certainly, Kastorf did not shy away from a political reading of Wagner's Ring. This is the set. This is from the uh, Siegfried section, and uh, part of it is set in a Caspian oil field. As a scenographic image created by the designer uh, Alexander Denich, this rendering of the Siegfried section invokes numerous layers of meaning. The arrangement of the four figures mimics the American monument to four founding fathers at Mount Rushmore, but substitutes Karl Marx, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong, mixing American, Prussian, Russian, and Chinese references, but inside a German cultural temple. Countries of origin, of course, are not the only political geographies invoked by these faces' presence, since the figures, aside from being tied to transnational workers' movements, and extensively commemorated in monuments across the communist and post-communist world, are now fully incorporated into the global network of popular culture. 
Beyond the Ostalgie stands and shops that continue to dot Berlin's commercial landscapes, selling reproductions of what we might call Kamitat, alongside actual DDR antiques from the 1970s and 1980s, digital culture has led to a vast acceleration of cultural references to these figures. Images of all four have been digitized to appear on t-shirts, stickers, tattoos, toilet paper, and novelty candles, not to mention memes. Where they stand in, perhaps problematically, for leftward political leanings in general, their historical particularities, distinct ideologies, and in some cases, their atrocities, subsumed into the flow of commodification. Facing these tangled ironies, Kostorf and Denich have imagined such a monument cast in stone rather than in pixels. The design is dominating yet provisional, with the scaffolding marking it as a building site or work in progress, either in the process of construction or restoration. <clears throat> Aside from creating the artistic impression of a temporary structure on its way to permanence, the audience also knows, in the frame of attending Bayreuth, that the structure is temporary in actuality, that these stones cannot possibly be solid, but must be the work of scene painters and set dressers. Finally, it is unmissable that this design is appearing in not just any theater, but in the theater that originated the Wagnerian concept of Gesamtkunstwerk, of a fusion of music, drama, literature, visual art, and myth that would generate sufficient power to elevate humanity. And we might speak here uh, in the Q&A. Um, there's obviously a pretty chunky footnote on this one, um, which I won't go into. Um, but essentially, um, I think the, the, the lure of the idea of Gesamtkunstwerk and its relevance to right-wing ideologies elsewhere, um, the, the degree to which it influenced Marinetti, that it influenced others, and the complexity of this Wagnerian legacy um, needs real unpacking. Intended as an intervention, the production was received as such. The 2013 premiere of the first part of the cycle led to some of the most adverse audience and critical reaction in the history of the festival. However, it was targeted at Kastorf and his creative team specifically, not the musicians. Even in a German tradition where operatic booing is not uncommon, these were torrents of opprobrium by all accounts. Greedily drunken in by a smiling Kastorf over the course of 10 minutes in, in the curtain call. Um, this is discussed uh, not just in this article, but extensively in the uh, Wagnerian critical literature as well. Opera audiences who had cultivated lifelong passions for Wagner's music as an auditory experience found themselves colliding suddenly with the politicized aesthetics of the German contemporary theater, where Kastorf was regarded as a master. But where is the strict difference between opera and theater today, formally speaking? When artists and audiences move freely between them, it underscores a slippage in genre. This is opera by virtue of it being Wagner at Bayreuth, yet it is also theater because of who Kastorf is and how he works. And audiences sought to separate these in the moment of reception to little avail. The image raises questions of ideological stability, a second slippage. Is this ring set in the so-called West, capital W, or the so-called East, capital W, or capital E? <laughs> Whoops. And what would those words mean in this context? Is this image, or another in the cycle set in a Caspian oil field, redolent of capitalism or communism? If a German audience member identifies with Wagner's tale as a fundamentally national one, noting, of course, the dark history and uses to which Wagner was put in the 20th century, but also identifies as a liberal democrat, is that coherent? And is the director's Marxism 
any less indigenously German than Wagner's Ring. Slippage has two other definitions that dovetail nicely with the project of this final section, one from the outer world of capitalist flow, what we might call where now, and one from the inner world of the mind, what we might call who now. In economics and finance, the word denotes a change in price between an asset's expected sale value in the market and the actual price at which it is sold. Whether positive or negative change, the same term can be used. Clearly, the value of selecting Kastorf to direct at Bayreuth did not trade initially on the cultural market at the anticipated rate, but his productions may also appreciate over time. Sometimes controversy can be good for canonicity, as any student of modernism knows. I see some of my uh, second years here from the modernism lectures, and uh, we're talking about mainly things that were not received well at the time in that, in that syllabus. So how should we value the work of art or the work of artists remains one of the most salient questions today for the cultural sector in a time marked by the continued dominance of capitalist systems, ongoing ecological disasters, and growing inequality. At the individual level, cognitive slippage is a diagnostic term in psychology for a range of what are called formal thought disorders that manifest through the unusual use of language, generally with concepts that are in fact related, but not in a consistent or anticipated way. For a person experiencing cognitive slippage, standard linguistic or structural categories give way. One idea might arise within one category, but then lead to another idea within the same series that does not belong in that same category, despite being related. So as an example from this lecture, we might say the series Kostorf, Stalin, Mao, Warhol, Lenin, Yoko, Marx, Duck Soup, Ibsen, Winge and Müller, for example. Associated with schizotypal diagnoses and elogia in patients with dementia, it arises from the inability to disregard exogenous connections. Okay, I'll skip another footnote, but you can ask more if you want to hear about that one. Um, while 20th century diagnostic criteria were busily formalizing scales to identify such slippages as maladaptive, modernism and postmodernism used cognitive slippage extensively as a creative tool, wielded to great effect by the surrealists in their critique of rationality. Elogia, language games, structural nonconformism, and category resistance are also practically and politically modernist. Both types of slippage, market and cognitive, have to do with expectations undergoing revaluation and categories collapsing or liquefying, often because of factors in the environment. It is the same collapse of stability and the quest to stabilize chaos back into order that has been a through line of modernity up to the present, creating the initial conditions for aesthetic modernism, as well as the durability of its tactics and insights today. Though the strategies and technologies of working in the ruins of an old order have changed, the structural feature of slippage has emerged repeatedly. Notably, both modernity and postmodernity have been previously theorized as solids turning into liquids, beginning in the mid-19th century. One of the most famous metaphors in the, 19, in the 1848 Communist Manifesto was the call by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels to melt the solids. But Zygmunt Bauman, writing in the 1990s, rightly points out that the 19th century solution was to replace what had been destroyed with different solids. Bauman coined the term liquid modernity in the 1990s as a way out of what he already perceived as a blind alley of postmodernism as a term. Through the metaphor of liquidity and lightness, he sought to revise five or six what he called orthodox narratives of the human condition, emancipation, individuality, 
time and space, work, and community. Since the creative arts productively develop within and respond to these same categories, it should come as no surprise that the parameters of aesthetic modernism are continually subjected to questioning and revision. So finally, uh, the section introduction of what, what the section contains to try and uh, land this plane or uh, resolve what we're discussing. The authors appearing in this section have been invited to reflect on how a more liquid cultural space has practically brought modernism into contemporary performance. Presenting a blend of examples that trouble or exceed traditional categories, the chapters put emphasis on assorted temporal, regional, generic, technological, philosophical, and political slippages, including in what constitutes theater, modernism, or contemporary as such. In her opening chapter, Penny Farfan elaborates the thorny questions of adaptation and gender, invoked by Ages of Arousal, a 2007 play by Linda Griffiths. The chapter draws extensively on the Canadian playwright's own dramaturgical notes and paratextual commentary, revealing the inner workings of an artistic process that Griffiths describes as not an adaptation of George Gissing's novel The Odd Women from 1893, but rather what she calls a dance of thievery and creativity with the author. In her restaging of feminist history in her early 21st century adaptation of Gissing's 19th century novel, Farfan argues, a, processional, a processual and provisional utopian performative emerges. In turn, that performative foregrounds the processual and utopian nature of adaptation as it evolves stories to new critical contexts through the dual gesture of replication and transformation. Farfan's chapter reads closely into a single example of performance to extrapolate a feminist dramaturgical poetics, poking more holes in the porous wall between novel and drama in the process. In a contrasting approach, the second chapter seeks to map the contemporary progress of a vast theoretical and terminological debate, namely the question of what avant-garde means today. Sasha Brew, a leading voice in avant-garde studies, provides a rich overview of recent debates, developments, and practices in how the term is understood, applied, and taught reflecting particularly on its relation to modernism and modernity and the discourse of the postmodern or the contemporary. For maximal accessibility and to bring the voice of Brew to, as a teacher and presenter to the fore, the chapter is structured as a dialogue, but it is also annotated with a robust set of scholarly sources from this rich subfield. Blending the styles of scholarly performance analysis and dialogue with practitioners is the third chapter of part four, Brecht as Slippage by Vamana Moss, Moss analyzes a 2020 piece by the German performance collective Interrobang, which is entitled Philosophia Machina, or The Philosophizing Machine, a participatory experience in which audience members are invited to take self-guided journeys through archival recordings of the philosophers Hannah Arendt, Karl Jaspers, and others. Moss writes that Interrobang's performance explores explore the underlying structures of contemporary society by developing participatory performance formats and theatrical installations that combine game, fiction, and narration, noting particularly the project's blended use of analog and digital technologies and its indebtedness to Bertolt Brecht and Heiner Müller. In a meta gesture worthy of the performance under discussion, Moss's essay concludes with a recording of her own in which Interrobang's co-artistic directors, Nina Tecklenburg and Tilman Müller-Klug speak in their own voices. The next two chapters are practitioner voices, also styled as dialogues, that seek to recover and re-elevate features of modernism in contemporary performance that have fallen outside of critical discourse or that trouble existing categories. The first of these is a dialogue between Sahika Tekand and Burch Idem Dinchel, 
exploring the groundbreaking work of Studio Oyunculari from Istanbul, Turkey, which has reworked classics from Beckett to Greek tragedy, as well as developing a training method under the name Performative Staging and Acting, <clears throat> as well as linking her work to modernism and its convoluted legacy in Turkey, Tekan thinks critically about how her work and its reception reveal what she calls the hegemonic mindset that regulates the policies of the culture industry, which she calls a flawless apparatus of this dominant system, rooted in a West that constructs Turkey as East, and thereby still subordinate, even as it bridges the European and Asian continents. Following Tekan is a discussion with the Irish designer, Aideen Cosgrove, perhaps best known for her role as co-artistic director of Pan Pan, one of the most significant, prolific, and experimental Irish theater companies of the past three decades. Cosgrove's testimony stresses the importance of considering scenographic and design praxis, often underserved in a modernist canon that valorizes directors, playwrights, and authors of manifestos. She also speaks of, to the slippage from modernism to the contemporary in purely visual terms, revealing the roots of some of her ideas in art history. The chapter is extensively illustrated with her designs. Consolidating and extrapolating from the thread of Beckett in contemporary performance that both Tekond and Cosgrove inaugurate, my own essay, Beckett and Border Thinking, considers wide-ranging interdisciplinary questions around the intermedial legacy of Samuel Beckett and its assorted boundaries. Considering both Beckett and his work as migrants, the essay is structured around four definitions of exterior and interior borders, linking the ongoing epistemic violence of center-periphery constructions in cultural production with the actual violence entailed in contemporary immigration policies. The chapter invokes the decolonial theories of Gloria Ansaldúa, Walter Mignolo, and Madina Tlostanova to consider how the rigidities of firm lines in Bikettian praxis might be rethought, presenting some outcomes of practice as research conducted with the Samuel Beckett Laboratory, particularly the 2018 and 19 Mapping Beckett workshops in Poland, as well as analyzing the boundary-defying work may be um, 1981, revived in 2021, by the company Maggie Marat. To finish the section, Kevin Bell offers a musically written rereading of Adrian Kennedy, who in his telling narrates the scene of writing as a material takedown of consciousness. Noting her deployment of deep subtextual sources, whether familial, literary, cinematic, or pop cultural, Bell shows how Kennedy's writing, especially her writing about writing, might, quote, momentarily dislodge from the industrial network of racial capitalist valuation that informs their every gesture of their absolute aloneness within that network. Ending with a discussion of the underanalyzed play An Evening with Dead Essex from 1973, Bell shows how a modernist futurity remains inscribed yet still unstable in Kennedy's slippages between fact and fiction, theater and media. He writes this, whatever sense of identity emerges through Kennedy's plays is both more and less than the exercise in subjective fragmentation and identification meditated upon so obsessively by Kennedy scholars. It is an unrelenting interrogation and outcome of the suffusion of textual, filmic, and other mediatic transmissions and implantations that overdetermine and disorganize such identifications. Despite being selected for their heterogeneity of approach, the diverse voices of scholars and artists, and scholar artists, artist scholars, translator teachers, hyphenate hyphenates, thinker nomads, collected here, often echo one another. Their desire to render the more complex diagnosis, their attention to the politics of aesthetics, their questioning of social and epistemic justice, their breadth and depth of reference, all point toward a collective resistance to the reification and commodification of modernism. Hello.
They hint instead at its liquefaction of a modernism flowing and perhaps flooding today's culture, rising and mingling and irreversibly inhabiting whatever new vessels we devise. Where artificial borders have been drawn, they do not plant a flag on one side or the other. They hang bunting over the line. When? Now. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Thank mm -hmm. you.